There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Good to be back. I say that every week, but it, I see you almost like every day. I know. <laughs> and still good to be back. Well, last week we had a great discussion with Carl Richards, the two of us, on simplifying the message. And for those that have not heard it or listened to it, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one. I thought it was pretty good. It was excellent. Carl's a great guy, and he really puts things in simple, easy-to-understand terms. So I've listened to it myself and enjoyed it again. It's always interesting listening to yourself on a podcast, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't recognize my own voice. <laughs> this week, we're getting into something a little different. We're going to dig into ESG investing. And so what ESG stands for is environmental, social, and governance. And before we get too much into it, what we want to talk about today is ESG versus SRI, which is socially responsible investing. And then we're going to dig into some various investment strategies related to ESG. So Greg, why don't you kick us off? Investors around the world these days are becoming increasingly aware of how certain business practices can potentially affect the environment and how that may impact future generations. So as a result, a lot of them are asking how they can align their investment decisions with their views on sustainability. And sustainable development is described by the United Nations as development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, which is an interesting way to look at it. So there's a variety of different investing philosophies within that responsible investing realm. And the one that we're going to start talking about is ESG. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And investors who employ that strategy, look at criteria within those three categories to analyze stocks. And combining the ESG lens or overlay with more traditional stock analysis techniques is known as ESG integration. And what we're starting to see is ESG investing is gaining a lot of traction these days. Let's take a look at ESG, look at each individual component of that and see what investors are looking for, what they're analyzing when they look at ESG investing. Well, let's start with E. <laughs> Why not? So E, as you said, and I said, stands for environmental. And this one really resonates with me. I think back just a few years ago, hiring a company to do my recycling at my house. Like yeah. that was a thing, right? That's Somebody right. went and started a company and said, hey, let's go around and gather people's recycling. We'll charge them a monthly amount to do so. And of course, the city of Calgary well, they got rid of all those businesses because the city just started doing all the recycling. That's right. But when I was a kid, it's not like anybody talked about recycling. No, and that's right. I mean, we just, there was no such thing. Everything you didn't use, you threw out. I remember you were kind of looked at funny if you didn't put it in the garbage. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think littering was the biggest thing you could do wrong in those days. Right. So E is for environmental or the environmental impact that 
companies have on the earth. So this could both be in positive and negative ways. So just what we described about recycling, of course, would be hopefully leading to a positive impact rather than just getting rid of things and throwing them away. But the environmental topics that people look at when they look at ESG would be things like company-specific, of course, climate change policies, plans and disclosures, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon footprint. This one gets a lot of attention in Calgary, of course, because we are surrounded by energy companies and energy companies are working hard to reduce their carbon footprints. We also have water-related issues. So this would be usage, conservation, overfishing and waste disposal. Seems to me there's an overfishing issue going on right now as in regards to lobsters that I was reading about. I think that's true. And when you think too about water-related issues, I guess it's easy when we're living in Calgary and we're sort of at the base of the mountains and we have rivers and tons of freshwater flowing through Calgary. But there's lots of places in North America that do not have an ample supply of fresh water. And that can be a real issue. Other environmental topics would be renewable energy. So this would be wind and solar. And this one comes up a lot. People talk about, well, why do we burn carbon to create energy? Why don't we just use wind and solar? But there's actually a lot of carbon input that goes into creating those wind farms and those solar panels. So other topics would be recycling, as I mentioned, safe disposal practices, green products, technologies, and infrastructure, and also environmental benefits for employees. So we can appreciate that, listen, if a company is doing recycling, that doesn't necessarily merit a check in the E category for that company, right? That's right. Exactly. So what's the S stand for? So S is for social. The social component consists of people-related elements like company culture and issues that impact employees, customers, consumers, and suppliers, both within the company and in greater society. So one of the things you'll notice when, if you pay attention to media reports, sometimes you'll see how companies treat their employees and you can look at their lobbying efforts for or against social justice issues. So some of the social topics would include things like employee treatment, pay benefits and perks, things like that, employee engagement and staff turnover or churn, training and development, safety policies, including sexual harassment prevention, diversity and inclusion in hiring and in awarding advancement opportunities and raises, ethical supply chain sourcing, such as conflict-free minerals and responsibly sourced food and coffee, mission or higher purpose of the business or lack of one of those, consumer friendliness, customer service, responsiveness, and history of consumer protection issues, including lawsuits, recalls, or regulatory penalties, and things like their public stance on social justice issues. Well, let's look at G. G is for corporate governance. So in corporate governance, ESG investors would look at how corporate managements and boards relate to different stakeholders. So how the business is run and whether the corporate incentives actually align with the business success. So corporate governance issues come up every year during the proxy season for every publicly traded company. Any shareholder is sent a proxy statement announcing the annual meeting, a variety of issues that they're going to be voting on. One of those issues could be a say on pay or executive compensation. But some of the other topics would be like compensation tied to metrics that drive long-term business value. A lot of companies might focus on really short-term earnings per share growth and not the long-term. Whether executives are entitled to these golden parachutes, are those a thing still? I think less so since the global financial crisis, but I'm sure it's still an issue in many companies. It would be interesting to do a show on 
a history of golden parachutes throughout the years. It'd be interesting for sure. Yeah, we'll have to look at that one. So other governance topics would be diversity of the board of directors and management team, the board of director composition. So just sort of any conflicts of interest, whether a company has a classified board of directors. And this one is interesting, whether a chairman and CEO roles are separate. I know a lot of companies have president and CEO or chairman and CEO as a dual role. That's right. And some do not, but dual or multiple class stock structures and transparency in communicating with shareholders. So in a nutshell, I guess that's what E, S, and G stand for. That's right. And actually one of the ones that comes up and we've talked to a couple of money managers, another thing that they look at under the whole governance thing is this concept of poison pills. What's that? A poison pill is basically, it's a structure put in place by companies to prevent being taken over in a hostile takeover. And so if a company is a target of a takeover by another company, what they do is they create a situation whereby they can issue rights to existing shareholders and allows the existing shareholders to buy more company stock at a discounted price. And what that does is it makes it much more expensive and in many cases impossible for another company to take over the target company. And many investors and money managers do not like that scenario because what it does is it artificially will keep a company intact and possibly to the detriment of certain shareholders by not allowing a takeover to take place. And so, in fact, it actually interferes with the normal functioning of the market. So those are the kind of things that people look for in terms of governance issues. So let's talk a little bit about the history of ESG investing. And when you look at the last many decades, going back to the 70s, a lot of management teams and investors have adhered to what's called the shareholder value theory that was popularized in 1970 by Milton Friedman. And it's also known as the Friedman Doctrine. And we've talked about Friedman in the past. We have, absolutely. And he argued that the company's only social responsibility is to maximize shareholder value. So in effect, to make money for the folks holding the stock. And a lot of the proponents of that shareholder value maximization put the pursuit of profit and shareholder returns above all other considerations. So I just want to make it clear, as good capitalists, we don't think pursuing profit is inherently dangerous. But many businesses can run into some serious problems if management is only concerned with maximizing short-term profit measures to please the markets at the expense of other stakeholders. So companies that chase the approval of the markets instead of building relationships with employees, for example, can end up making workers more likely to unionize or quit. And when a toxic philosophy sort of pervades a company culture, it's more likely that employees will make the poor decision to engage in possibly dangerous, risky, or even illegal dealings to appease management's demands for short-term profit. So that whole goal of profit only can actually have some detrimental effects in terms of how employees and management behave. So ultimately, obsessing over earnings per share or other short-term metrics is a good way for companies to open themselves up to lawsuits, investigations, regulations, etc. When you're talking about Friedman's argument on social responsibility being only to maximize shareholder value, I had a visualization of Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. You've mentioned him before. Well, <laughs> it's a very influential movie, and him standing in front of an annual meeting for a company, chanting or screaming almost that greed is good. Exactly. Yeah, right. that's right. Maybe it was then, but it feels like things have changed a lot over the last few decades in regards to that theory. Thank goodness. 
So where we are now is we're entering this thing called socially responsible investing, which is different than ESG. So at the same time as Friedman making these statements, investors began divesting from companies that they didn't align with basically on a moral or ethical belief system. And evidence of this was during the apartheid in South Africa, which I was reading about in preparation for this show. And how can I describe this? It's different. So as you say, ESG is all about ranking a score to a company about how they compare to their peers or to the broader market by environmental, social, and governance policies. Where SRI would be actually just excluding a company or an industry or something because you just don't believe in what they do morally. Exactly. So it's more about a company's, not a company, but stakeholders in general. So stakeholders can be not just shareholders, but this is the employees, customers, suppliers, distributors, communities, neighbors, and even the environment. And there's an ironic twist to this is that shareholders have the power to damage a company by selling their shares. For sure. And we've seen this a few times over the years where companies will get into trouble on a moral ground basis and the shares get dumped. That's right. Exactly. So let's talk about some of those investment strategies related to ESG or sustainable investing. And the first one, which you just talked about, socially responsible investing. And what we're talking about here is, so what strategies would a money manager or an investor use to implement a socially responsible investing strategy? And basically, as you said, what they do is they actually use filters or screens to exclude certain companies or certain industries that don't meet their particular value criteria. One of the earliest examples, many SRI investors screen out tobacco, alcohol, and weapons stocks, leaving most other companies and industries eligible to select for further analysis and inclusion in a portfolio. Other people may take issue with lobbying done by certain companies and keep them out of their consideration pool for that reason. And SRI investors might also screen out all companies in a particular industry, except those considered best-in-class. So a best-in-class investor might screen out all fossil fuel companies, except those that outperform their peers in areas of sustainability or employee treatment, corporate governance, etc. That's confusing because it's in that way, then it's almost like that form of SRI is ESG. That's right. The big issue is whether the approach you take is strictly exclusionary, meaning that we don't buy any companies involved in oil and gas extraction or any companies involved in tobacco production or marijuana companies, for example, something like that. So those are totally exclusionary. And then when you get into some of these where finding an oil and gas or an energy company that actually has high marks for sustainability or for a lower carbon footprint, that's more like ESG. So that's more selecting companies or ranking companies within a particular industry. Now, Greg, you and I have a real life example of this. We were asked to present to a how can you say it without saying their names, a religious organization. organization yeah. That's right. About possibly investing some money for them. And they came back and said, well, we can't have anything energy related in the portfolio whatsoever. Yes. Right? That was That's right. a standard thing. But we want to outperform the market. It's expected we're going to outperform the market, but we have all of these parameters of things that we can't own. And it's one of the costs, and we'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's one of the costs of sustainable investing is that 
by excluding whole companies or industries, you might actually be excluding some of the best performing stocks. And that's fine on a socially responsible basis. You may well choose to do that and say, I'm willing to give up some return in favor of sort of having my values implemented through the portfolio. Other people may believe that in the long run, by investing in socially responsible or ESG type companies, that they will in the long run get better returns because those companies have a better chance of lasting through various business cycles and for the long run. But some of those companies, when they come out as maybe not as ESG or SRI as first thought, they must get punished. I would think so. Things change with them and that may change their decision to be included or excluded from a particular portfolio. So shareholder activism is another form of SRI. It occurs when investors buy shares of companies that other SRI investors find unpalatable or reprehensible. And the main reason why they do that is they're trying to engage with those companies to encourage or demand improvement. So engagement tactics include things like filing shareholder proposals, attending annual meetings, and speaking directly with executives. So the strategy here isn't necessarily about making money or being long-term buy-and-hold investors. Usually, these shareholders sell their shares after companies adequately engage with them on reform by addressing the targeted issues or even fully meeting their demands. Unfortunately, not all activist investors are socially responsible. And some of the things you've seen, and maybe getting back to Gordon Gecko <laughs> and Wall Street, the other type of shareholder activist typically buys large stakes in companies to influence management, but they sort of hail from the shareholder profit camp pushing for short-term profit boosts that can damage long-term strategic initiatives. And it only works because of the massive amount of money they sank into the company. So becoming an activist investor isn't an option for most individuals anyway, but it's worth knowing about these deep-pocketed vultures so you can raise a red flag if one of your investments get targeted by them. Would this be like uh, Bill Ackman and Pershing Capital? Would that be a... It could be. Those are definitely activist investors, and they look to if they believe a company isn't being managed possibly to the benefit of the existing shareholders, they'll take large positions in the company and try to influence by having their members nominated to board seats and try to influence the company with the direction that they believe it should go. But again, those are often driven by profit motives and not by socially responsible type of values. And this one's a little different for me because it's not like you and I, if we go invest in a company because we want to bring forward some change to the way that the company does something environmentally, like you or I or any other retail investor is going to have very little influence actually on the management of that company. That's right. So it, it would demand those large stakeholders. That's right. And typically the kinds of things that we'd be looking at and investors would be looking at would be things like mutual fund companies that use ESG or sustainability screens in their selection. And in many cases, some fund companies actually look to actively engage with management of these companies on governance issues and things like that. Because I see this sort of one or two shareholders carrying a sign <laughs> out in front of the annual meeting and the rest of the company just sort of walking by them. That's right. <laughs> which is different than impact investing. So in shareholder activism, you are trying to create, I guess, a platform for change within a company. But impact investing is you actually identify a company that you align with in regards to their philosophical issues on environment and social impacts. And you are aligning with them in your investment dollars because you expect them to have positive financial returns. 
So that's different than shareholder activism. This seems more like a momentum strategy to me. Like you sort of identify a few companies that have done well, and then I guess you'd start with a top-down strategy, and then you would dig into their ESG type of scoring or governance, and then you would decide where to allocate your dollars. Is that essentially how you decide for that? Absolutely. And then there's this word conscious capitalism, which is, this is a buzzword. There's a lot of thematic buzzwords these days. And actually, the reason we wanted to do this episode on ESG is because there's actually a lot of ESG products being launched. And it seems like I can't, I don't know, open up my email without having another ESG email from somewhere. And as a matter of fact, a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors, which I don't know, we're not recommending or not recommending. (laughs) They came out with a sustainability fund. And this was along those lines. That's right. Maybe, do you have any information on that fund? Well, we'll talk about that possibly for sure on a future episode. I just wanted to get out of talking about conscious capitalism, but you didn't let me. No, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So basically conscious capitalism is aligning the business with stakeholders for shared success. A company that fits within that realm not only seeks profits to benefit shareholders, but also serves other stakeholders like employees, the environment, suppliers, customers, and communities. So serving all stakeholders is thought to strengthen a business and generate long-term profitability. Now, I should mention, a lot of our discussion today came from an article on Motley Fool written by a guy named John Rotonti, and it was a great article. So a lot of this information that we're going through today, we have to credit back to John. For sure. So Greg, how is ESG investing different? As we talked about, a lot of SRI or socially responsible investing focuses on excluding. It's a negative screen and it's devised around excluding companies from being in a portfolio. Sustainable or ESG investing really looks at inclusion. So what companies do you want to include and in what proportion based on their positive attributes in the whole ESG realm? The difference there is when you look at sort of that binary approach where a company's either in or out, what it can do is you can distort a company's sustainability profile and you might end up with a company being needlessly removed from a portfolio. So for example, a company with strong sustainability policies might be screened out because of some minor infraction. Or all companies in a particular industry might be excluded because of an industry's environmental record irrespective of what the company's specific policies and practices are now. Well, kind of like the example we talked about with the energy companies and this religious organization. That's right, exactly. And what happens with sort of if you have a very exclusionary kind of policy is you might end up with a smaller investment universe and maybe reduced opportunities for diversification. And so I think we want to make sure that we're using screens that don't necessarily always exclude or include a particular company, but maybe allow for different weightings in different companies based on like a score, an ESG score. So that's one example there of how ESG is a little bit different. Can you give us that example that we were reading about the, like a missile defense company? Do you remember reading about that one? Well, yeah, for sure. So you can get a distasteful industry and still have a high ESG company. So a defense company that specializes in missile production and might score high on environmental sustainability, employee treatment, corporate governance, and diversity. And that may merit inclusion in an ESG fund, even though for a traditional SRI investor, it would be 
a stock that would not be included in their portfolio. It almost doesn't seem fair. What if you're the best, most cleanest, you have the best environmental track record of all the missile companies <laughs> and you just happen to make missiles. <laughs> exactly. It seems unfair, which is of course a joke, but ESG investors do screen out entire industries for that reason. But bear in mind that there's no standard to this yet. There's no accepted standard across the community as to how to track ESG. What is ESG? Like this is kind of newer territory, right? Absolutely. That's right. So even though we argued that the movement started back in the 70s, this whole, this sort of re-emergence of a new movement, I would call it, is really new right now. Just a lot of people are becoming more and more interested in it. this whole attitude that lots of people have values around what they believe is socially responsible. But we're also seeing that we're seeing a lot more interest in that among millennials. And millennials are a massive generation going to be a larger group than the baby boomers. There's 71 million individuals born between 1981 and 1996 in America alone. No, wait, you're not going to be hard on millennials on this, right? Not at all. In fact, I think it's a good thing that they're showing concern for the environment and concern for their future because, uh, of course, their future is what they're concerned about. I did want to mention one last thing before we finish up. It's important to note that sustainable investing does come with costs. Okay, and so there's costs in just applying the screens that we use to address sustainability issues. So it takes time, it takes analysis, and therefore money as a cost to the portfolio to apply those screens. You might actually exclude some high-performing stocks from the portfolio, and that in itself will be a cost to the portfolio, one that investors may choose to accept, but it is absolutely a cost to the portfolio. And lastly, you might be reducing diversification by screening out stocks. So this actually aligns with the title of our podcast, Free Lunch, because free lunch is an economic term for opportunity cost. So what you're describing is that there's no free lunch to SRI or ESG investing. There's an opportunity cost that you are giving up. There could be for sure. And I think when we look at this, well, the big question is how to implement a sustainability screen or an ESG screen on a portfolio. And the goal in the end, is to provide an environmentally sustainable strategy without compromising those investment principles that we've been talking about for the last 20-some podcasts. Mm -hmm. You know, the principles of proper asset allocation and diversification and cost. So I think that's the goal here. Right on. So in just a couple sentences, Greg, what did we learn today? I think what we learned is that people are looking now more and more to have their social beliefs and values reflected in their investment portfolios. And ESG or sustainable investing is a way that people can have those values implemented in a portfolio, still have the opportunity to earn returns that the markets are poised and structured to provide to you in a way that is sustainable for the long run. And I'm personally excited about these opportunities that are coming up in this area. Having kids, just like you have kids, having another generation to think about, and having generations for those generations to think about, it's kind of exciting to see some of that change, that it's not all about maximizing shareholder value today, that there is a social responsibility by the citizens of our country and the world to be involved in some of these things. That's right. As we talked about in the original 
sort of definition of sustainable development by the United Nations, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So we can't be greedy. We've got to leave something for the generations that follow us. And I'll close that off with saying that that discussion we had with that organization where they wanted to have an SRI platform or a socially responsible platform, but they expected to beat the market. So these things, they might work for some time. It doesn't seem like it would work for the long term, just in regards to total profitability. And I think the bottom line is a better objective is to invest in a socially responsible way or a sustainable way while still achieving reasonable returns. Right on. Well, listen, have you been watching anything or reading anything fun these days? I have mentioned to a few of us on the team about the movie I just saw, a new movie on Netflix called The Trial of the Chicago 7. And so many of you youngsters were not around in 1968. This particular movie is about the riots that took place around the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968. And this was right in the middle of the Vietnam War. And talking about social conscience, there was a lot of young people and activists that were against the war in Vietnam, and they chose to display that outside the Democratic National Convention that year. And it turned into a riot. It turned into a long trial of many people involved in it. It's a fascinating movie and uh, great to watch, and it's on Netflix. Yeah, and because you mentioned it, I'm actually halfway through it myself, so I'm enjoying it so far. Well, great. I have to tell you, I watched The Godfather. Oh, yeah. One. The new movies. Yeah, no, Godfather 1, and then I had so much time to kill, I watched Godfather 2, and then I watched Godfather 3. (laughs) Of course, not all in one sitting, but those were great. Those are great movies, for sure. They don't make them like that anymore. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch, and we hope to have you back next time when, actually, we're going to be interviewing Ben Carlson from Animal Spirits. That's going to be fun. Yeah. All right. Till next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.